So if you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Samuel, surprise, surprise, chapter uh, 15. And this morning, we are going to dive into one of the more, well, uh, one of the more interesting chapters of 1 Samuel. If you have ever, as we've gone through this book, or as you've read the Old Testament in the past, if you've ever found yourself wondering, how do I make sense of some of these difficult things that are happening here uh, that I'm reading about? If you've ever asked that question or felt that or wondered that, then this morning you'll probably find this to be a pretty interesting chapter that we're going to be in here. Um, I'm going to read just some parts of it and then sort of paraphrase the rest of it, and I would encourage you to go back and read through it. A lot of the times we'll read through a whole chapter together, other times we'll kind of summarize it, um, but if we ever don't read through it together um, all, all collectively, then I definitely would encourage you to go and do that at some point on your own, um, uh, if nothing else, you know, then you can be like, wait a second, that's, why did it say that? That was totally, you know, not there, but that, sh- that won't happen. Um, but it's always good to do that anyway. Um, so if you have a Bible open to 1 Samuel 15, and I want to read the first um, sort of little bit of what happens here, and then we'll, we'll kind of go back and we'll talk about it. Um, this is uh, Samuel, and he's being given instructions by God, and it has to do with this group of people, the Amalekites. And um, so here we go. Uh, and Samuel said to Saul... The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep camel, and donkey. Let's stop right there for a second. Have you ever, like, watched a movie um, with your kids or something that you hadn't watched in a while, and you have to turn it off because you're like, whoop, forgot that was in there, or, uh, whoa, that was a little bit more intense than I remembered it, right? This is how the, especially reading passages in the Old Testament, can often feel to us. As we encounter something like this, which is not the first time we've encountered it in First Samuel even, but an instruction given by God for the king of the Israelites to go after a group of people and to completely, it seems, wipe them off the face of the earth. And in, in such a uh, merciless and brutal uh, and ungracious way, it seems so excessive. It seems uh, that any part of us that really resonates with the the loving kindness of God would read this and say, how on earth could you reconcile this command that God is giving to the king to do, it seems, in his own name? Saul goes and he he engages these people in battle, and, um, and this is what we read happens afterwards. Uh, But Saul and the people, it says, spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. 
all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So, uh, to give you a little bit of a backstory before we dive into this, and we are going to dive into this. Um, when the Israelites left Egypt and were wandering in the desert, defenseless, <clears throat> no promised land yet at that point, uh, the Amalekites found them and attacked them. And God ultimately would deliver um, the, them from the Amalekites. If you've ever remember the story in the Old Testament of Moses holding up you know, his arms and his staff and them winning um, in, this, in this battle, uh, that's the battle. And so they fight off the Amalekites and they are victorious over them. But there's kind of this oath made, this, this sworn oath made. And the oath is, you know, God saying, like, these people are not going to be a people anymore because of what they have done to the Israelites. My people that I brought out of Egypt, you know, basically saying, hey, I didn't bring them out of Egypt for them to get attacked out here in the desert in the wilderness. And, uh, and God once again shows that the Israelites, although they're a group of slaves and refugees, will not be defeated because they are God's people. And so there's some backstory here. And he says to Samuel, you know, God, Samuel comes to Saul uh, because God has told him to. And he says, he says, uh, and he reminds him, he says, remember, I anointed you king over Israel, okay? That's kind of a way of saying, like, remember the position that you're in. Remember the, uh, the position I have in your life, right? I'm the one that <clears throat> kind of, I'm the one that spoke to, you're the one that God has chosen, so listen to me, right? Prophets will often do this when they're trying to get someone's attention. They'll be like, remember that thing I said that you liked? Well, here's something I'm going to say that you maybe won't like, right? You got to take both. So he says this to Saul, and he gives him the command to devote to destruction, which is such a weird way of putting it, these people, utterly everything. God is very clear about this. Now, this isn't the first time that we come across what seems like this mass, almost genocide, in the Old Testament. When the Israelites have gone into the promised land to take it over, um, into the land of Canaan, from the Canaanites, the people that are living there at the time, they are told to wipe out these people, to push out these people, and really just completely wipe them out to, uh, to utterly destroy those people, right? And, and oftentimes this word destruction or destroy is the one that's used, and then often this word devote is put with it, which is, again, a strange thing, right? Okay, if you're going to if you're going to cause something to be, if you're going to destroy something, why are you devoting it to destruction, right? But the word devote is the word that is used uh, whenever the people are doing a thing for uh, the purpose of purity, for the purpose of actually um, ensuring that the Israelite people will be pure. You devote a thing to God, meaning you set the thing aside, you put the thing aside, you cast the thing aside. Most of the time, this is used in the language of like the idea of sacrifices, right? Uh, I have this animal that I want that's valuable, that's good, that would do my family a lot of good. Um, I'm going to devote it to God, or I'm going to devote it to destruction for God. I have set this thing aside for the sake of my own purity, and I've set it aside to be destroyed, God is very clear with Saul through Samuel. He says, you are to attack these people who, uh, who essentially, he says, sort of, it seems to say and imply by the history they have, these people almost have it coming. And he says, you are to, to utterly destroy them and you're to devote them to destruction. And so what Saul does is what people often do in the Bible is he... He, about halfway through, he gets kind of pragmatic, 
He goes, well, you know, I mean, God wanted me to, you know, uh, devote these things to destruction. So, so what if we just, uh, and what he ultimately says is he says, um, all that was good, he would not utterly destroy, and all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So he goes, okay, so I'm going to interpret what God has said you know, in what seems like a pretty reasonable way. I'm going to interpret what God has said, and I'm going to assume that what that means is that as we attack these people, much like um, when the promised land is being taken, uh, as we attack these people, I mean, I'm sure God wouldn't want everything to be destroyed. Why? What would be the purpose of destroying an entire people? What would be the purpose of, uh, of destroying animals that could be used for, I mean, animals don't worship gods, right? They're not, uh, they don't have a culture that they bring in. And so what would be the purpose of destroying all the animals, right? Wouldn't it glorify God more if uh, we had more animals, right? Wouldn't it glorify God more if we could sacrifice those animals uh, later on, right? Wouldn't those things glorify God? You see, a person gets in trouble in the Bible when they are doing something for God, and then they start going, well, wouldn't it be better if wouldn't God appreciate it if? And yet what's so hard to wrap our mind around here is, uh, is that he seems to be, if anything, showing mercy by doing this. I mean, if you're the person who is spared, which ends up being the king, he ends up sparing um, this man who's leading them. He ends up sparing many people. He ends up sparing the people that he thinks could be useful for the Israelites, sparing the animals that he believes could be useful for the Israelites. If you're one of those people, then... You look at Saul and you say, he's merciful. He is a good king. He is good, right? If you're the king who says to him basically like, hey, there's been enough bloodshed, right? Let's, let's just say what's in the past is in the past. And Saul goes, okay. So he goes and he tells Samuel about this. It's almost like, wouldn't this be uh, the best thing that a good king could do? Maybe he takes what God says and he kind of maybe cleans it up a little bit, you know, makes it a little bit more, you know, practical, a little bit more tolerable, and then says, okay, it's my job to now go ahead and try to do this thing. So I'm sure God is going to be very happy. We then read on that and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So he tells Samuel, I mean, it's kind of like some, sometimes the language that's used here in Samuel, it's like, it's pretty interesting because he actually just says to him, like, you could see this playing out, and it's almost kind of humorous. It's, it's kind of sarcastic, basically. Samuel's going, uh, really? What, do, what, do I, what am I hearing? The, what are the animals that I'm hearing? That doesn't sound like destruction to me. Saul says, well, no, here's this thing that I did, and it makes sense, and it's good, and it's probably a sign that I'm a great king. So ultimately, Samuel says this. And Samuel said in verse 22 through 23, has the Lord... As great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination 
And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, if your Bible has a heading on the chapter, it is most likely listed as Saul is rejected as king. One of the things that we come across again and again here, and we have come across, is what seems like unreasonable behavior on the part of the God of the Israelites. Unreasonable expectations, you might even say. I mean, you have Saul, who we have said again and again, gets a pretty bad rap because he's like supposed to be, in our minds, maybe the bad king that comes before David, who's the great king. Uh, but really, um, God appointed this king, and, uh, and he appointed him because he represented all the things he thought the people would like and would, and would care about. And, and God is rejecting him for what seems like such a small thing. As Pastor Matt preached a few weeks ago, when he makes sacrifices and, uh, and attempts to do something in a way to gain God's favor during battle, or um, because he does it wrong, God comes down on him. He condemns him. And we see these things happen and you go, this is really why Saul gets rejected as king? I mean, this, right? And yet, we look back throughout the history of the Israelites, and we see this kind of thing again and again. We see, we see Moses uh, getting water from a rock and doing things in the wilderness that seem like he's one part off of the plan, and then it's like, you don't get to go into the promised land. A person doesn't do one specific thing that seems so almost nitpicky, and then they lose their place. It makes God seem to us unreasonable. And there's these two things that a person reading 1 Samuel 15 wrestles with. The first is how do you reconcile the violence that God tells his people to go and do? And on the other hand, how do you also reconcile that this gracious, loving God uh, seems so unpredictable when it comes to the way he treats these leaders and these people. Of all the things to be rejected for as king, this thing that he does, the reason why God comes down on Saul, the reason why Samuel comes down on Saul, because he's able to see more clearly, is quite simply put, this, the, and it is the core reason, it's the, it's the motivation behind a lot of times when we see this in the Bible. And it all comes back to this idea, this concept that we think we're comfortable with, but we're really not very comfortable with. And it is the idea of the holiness of God. The idea that to acknowledge the holiness of God and to obey God is to obey him even when it doesn't totally make sense. It is when people get to this point in their relationship with God where they say, 
God is great. God is good. I'm going to follow him. That didn't make sense. Hang on a second. I'm probably going to have to reevaluate this thing. At some point, I'm going to be able to see how it makes sense with the way I want things to be. And then we begin to shape God to fit our own expectations of him. And that is when uh, holiness becomes an issue. Because God says, do this thing this way. And we say, well, it doesn't make sense to me to do it that way. Or I don't really see why it should be that way. Or it's really hard to do it that way. So why don't I do it this way? You see, it's, uh, we all have this tendency to obey God up until the point that it doesn't make sense anymore. And at that point, to usually stop and reevaluate things, right? And this is what we see happening here with Saul. But to talk about, I think, even the bigger, more glaring issue that continues to come up in 1 Samuel, there's no way to really comprehensively address the issue of why God um, seems to command his people uh, in the Bible to do things that lead to violence, to, to these acts of violence and these acts of war. How do you reconcile that? I mean, there are uh, entire um, groups um, that have developed within Christianity that believe that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament in a very clear, physical, specific way because of texts like this. They say there's no way that Jesus could have come from this God that we read about in the Old Testament. There's no way that these two things line up in some way. I mean, it has been so difficult for people to often reconcile that. And so it, it makes sense that we would read it and we would say, wait a second. That as I read these accounts to my own children, that these are the first questions that they will ask me, that they have asked me, is, I mean, beyond the really weird questions, you know. But they, these are the first questions that they will ask me, is why does God do this? Why does God command this? Why does God allow this? Of, of many who, will, who refuse to accept that the Christian faith is in any way plausible uh, will look at things like this and say, how can you make sense out of something like this? And there is a way, I think, to at least explain why we see this happen, and it is not a contradiction of who God is. It is not simply uh, they chose to write with too much detail, and they would have been smarter to leave some of these things out. But you have to understand, first of all, the bigger picture. You see, um, the Bible paints a very clear picture about the way people operate and about the way that sin has affected the world. The path of the fallen world in which we live is sin and destruction. It's like the law of thermodynamics that says that things are breaking down. The world that we live in, and the Bible tells us this again and again and again, is proof and, and testifies to the fact that the path of our fallen world is sin and ultimately then destruction. You remember God first created things to glorify him and himself. He created us and he created this physical creation and time and space and all these things so that he would ultimately be glorified. And then as sin enters the picture, we see this tendency for things to keep just getting worse again and again and again. 
And as God continues to come to his people and to rescue them and to make a way for them to still be with him, people still seem to keep messing it up. Adam and Eve, things were good, then they weren't good. And as God made a way for them forward, then there's their own children who sin. And again, things are not good. We see things like the flood, where God says, because of the destruction that sin has caused, I'm starting over. And even beyond that, or you see things like the Tower of Babel, where people are, are, are attempting to use even the great things that they seem to be able to accomplish together, the unity that they could have together, ultimately for destruction. What the Bible shows us is something very specific about what sin has done to us, which is we're on a path that's always going to lead to destruction, always. It's going to happen again and again. And that if God restarts things again and again, we will continue to do that. We will continue to lead to destruction. Left to ourselves, mankind will find ourselves beyond the point of salvaging. We won't be able to fix it. This is what the Bible says. We see this in marriages. I often have couples ask me, um, you know, is it okay biblically for us to get divorced? I, I have couples ask me that. I've had couples, many couples ask me that. Because there is a fear of disobeying God, and yet this feeling that the marriage is at a point where this just seems like the best thing for everyone. And in these conversations, so often I find myself saying, you are already divorced. The point that you have gotten to in your marriage is that you have allowed this thing to fall apart to such a degree. You have left these things unaddressed. You've ignored these issues. You've pushed things aside. You've tried to do other stuff to focus on that. And you have allowed this relationship to sort of wither and die. You are, functionally speaking, divorced from one another. So what you're talking to me about is a technicality of, uh, of will God allow you to do, to do this in name, legally, to have this contract, to, to dissolve this thing and know that you can oftentimes, most of the time, move on and find another person who you'll be able to so easily make it work with. I often find myself telling people, you are on a path that is leading to this place. The end of this path is destruction. This is one of the things that a pastor often finds themselves finding a way, trying to find a way to lovingly say to a person, is that you're on a path that will lead to destruction, and if something doesn't happen, the end result will be death. We have to acknowledge and understand the fact that what the Bible says is something that we see evident in the world around us constantly and something that we see in our own hearts, which is that the path of our fallen world is ultimately destruction. People who study the Old Testament and who study some of the violence that we see in the Bible will continually draw connections between the Bible that we see and the fallenness of man. That the narrative of the Old Testament shows us that violence arises organically from the sin of this world. The source of violence and pain is the sin of this corrupt world in which we live. That is where those things come from. 
And because we are on a path to destruction, the other thing the Bible makes very clear again and again is that if God does not step in, we will only face destruction. In short, we are already dead. We just don't know it. And if God doesn't step in, nothing's going to change that or fix that. And many of us hear this and we go, yeah, I get it, I know, that's, some, that's a basic thing. I came to understand that before I became a Christian. That was a part of the gospel and responding to it. But if this really is an easy thing for you to understand, if this is, a, if this is not a difficult thing for you to reconcile yourself with, then you're either an extremely cold-hearted, calloused human being or you are really messed up in some way, some other way. Because this should not be an easy thing for you to just accept. There is, there, it is not easy for me to look into the eyes of my own children and to believe that we all deserve death. But when I see in my children is what it looks like for a person to be beautifully and wonderfully made and yet naturally and consistently want things that will hurt themselves and that will hurt other people. And in that way, I see them as the enemy to their happiness in life more than any exterior outside force. Nowhere is that more apparent probably than with children, young children especially. We get better at hiding the way that we are our own enemy, that we are causing much of the destruction that we experience around us. It doesn't change the fact that they're beautiful and that they're wonderful and that I love them, but it is one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing, to accept the fact that it is indeed true that we deserve death because the path that we're on leads to destruction unless something else happens. And the Bible is the account of God constantly, God coming and rescuing and redeeming a fallen people. A God who saves, a God who, who comes after and welcomes back and makes a way back. And God does this because he is personal. The way that Israel interacts with God, it's almost like they're interacting with a, with a physical person. He has personality. He has rationality, he has emotion, and God being personal isn't weak. It's not a weakness to be personal. But the other thing that we see is that God is relational. He chooses to relate to his creation and not simply stand back and watch it from afar. It's one of the most important things to really understand about the Trinity is the fact that the Trinity shows us that God can be relational with himself, which means he doesn't need us or his creation to be fulfilled. So God desires relationship with us, but doesn't need relationship with us. God is relational in the way that he is with people. But here's where things get difficult. God's relationship with Israel is one of choosing. God chooses Israel. Israel must choose God. Jesus' relationship with his followers is one of choosing. Jesus chooses us and calls us to choose him and to follow him. But if you know anything about relationships, and this really is where it starts to get tricky, 
is that any relationship involves giving up something called control. In order for you to be in a relationship with someone else, you have to give up some of the control that you have over your life and over the things being the way you want them in your life. And God's decision to form authentic relationships with people means that he freely chooses to give up a measure of the control. He chooses to give that up because this is what's required of relationships. And as a result, God adapts what he is doing in response to the human partners that he is in relationship with. This is not sin. This is not weakness. This does not mean that God cannot do things, but it means that he chooses to give up control Things will be less the way God would have them when he is in complete control. And we see this. We see that God allows things, God will even will things that are not the things that God himself would choose were he not in a relationship with the people who were fallen. If you go and have lunch with your friend and you say, where do you want to eat? You probably are going to have to find a place that works for both of you. Or one of you is going to have to let go of some of the control in order to have that. One of the, I saw this movie once called The Breakup about a guy and, and who's living, his guy and his girlfriend, they were living together and they broke up, but they didn't want to sell their place and so they stayed there. And it's supposed to be this like funny movie about like, you know, all the bad things that happen while they still try to like, live together but not be together. And what's so interesting in this movie is there's this point towards the end where you get this glimpse of like, wow, they really actually understand something about the way people function. And it's when this guy is talking to his friend and it's the part where like, you know, you go talk to your friend and you tell them all the terrible things about the other person and they go, oh yeah, they sound terrible. They sound terrible. That's the worst, right? Because that's why you go talk to your friend is because they'll agree with you. And his friend says, oh, come on, man, everybody knows, you don't do, everybody knows that, I mean, you're one of the most selfish people I know, you know, but it's okay, because you're my friend. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he says, you only ever do what you want to do. We never do what I want to do. And that's fine. That's just part of being your friend. And he's like, what? And he says, yeah, I mean, nobody can be in a relationship with you, because you just always have to have things the way that you want them. And he realizes this horrible thing about himself which is I can't be in a relationship with any person unless I let go of some of the control because that's a part of being in relationships with people. And so as God steps in to what's going on in increasingly bigger ways to save us, his choice to step in is the same as us committing to a relationship with another person. And so whenever he does this, he is coming to us, and in doing so, he's giving up a measure of control. It doesn't mean that he's changing who he is. It doesn't mean that his standard is lowered. He doesn't compromise who he is. He does not sin, but he does give up control. We see God do things that are not the things that God would choose to do. Were he going to be in control of all things? at all times. God floods the earth to save and redeem his creation. God chooses one people to work through, which by nature means all the other people won't be his people unless they acknowledge this God and, and, and adopt him ultimately as their God. 
He allows people to have a king, which means Israel won't experience all, which means that, that Israel's going to experience all the shortcomings of having a king. And if you study the text, you'll see that most of the shortcomings that God points out have to do with war, have to do with battle. God chooses to physically incarnate himself in the form of Jesus, limiting himself to all the things that a person living in the flesh is limited to. God chooses to do things as he rescues and redeems his people. And these things show us what it looks like when God says, in order for this relationship to work, I will let go of some of the control. And the violence that we encounter in the Old Testament is always connected to the control that God has given up in order to redeem his people. We feel this need to say that if God tells his people to do something, that that means that that is the thing that God would desire to do were God completely in control. We say, well, shouldn't, isn't God in control? Shouldn't God be in control? When God chooses to be, he is completely in control. God is capable of being completely in control. But in order to redeem a people who are constantly bent on a road to destruction, God, to be in a relationship with those people, will let go of some of the control. And this is where we see so much of the violence come in. God chooses to act in the way that leaves his creation most free to choose him for themselves, but this does come at a cost. We have a hard time understanding why God would, I mean, allow things to happen a certain way, why he would choose to do things a certain way. Take the example of something like the issue of slavery or the issue of racism. Uh, the idea that, um, you know, we, we would go, why wouldn't God just change the minds of these slave owners? Why wouldn't God change the minds of the people instituting Jim Crow era uh, racist laws? Why would God not just change their minds? Why would he, you know, have to raise up these, these people, uh, people like Martin Luther King or people like in Britain during slavery, Wil William Wilberforce? Why, why, would he, why would he raise up these people and then allow all this conflict and these things to happen in order for this situation to be addressed? Why wouldn't he just change their minds, change their hearts? You see, we, we, we want... God, in so many instances, to just change the way that people think and the way that people act. And yet God consistently chooses not to do that, but to instead bring about restoration, a solution, to raise up a person, to address the sin, to address the things that are happening as a result of the destruction, the path that we're on. It doesn't mean that God can't do the other thing. But God's desire, he is most glorified when people choose him. And so that is what God will always allow us to do. God's will. God made it so that his own son would die for our sins. Do we believe at any point that that is how God would do things 
if he chose to be completely in control? No. If God chose to be completely in control, we would have no way back to him. We would have no one to save us. One of the things that we see throughout 1 Samuel is that borders, kings, and other gods are the enemies. And God is dealing with these enemies. When he chooses to make a nation for himself and when the people say we want a king, God now is a part of this king system. And as a part of that system, certain things have to happen in order for Israel to actually show the the glory, the bigness of God, they will defeat their enemies because that is the only way that that could be shown in such a time, in such a place, in these various cultures that are all following their various gods and all believing that their kings are practically gods. God kills in order to save. He does not kill in anger. He does not kill out of judgment. What we read about in 1 Samuel is not, it it is so easy to make the mistake of saying, well, maybe the reason why God did this is because these people were so evil that they deserve to be wiped out like this. But God doesn't say that. Uh, Very, very rarely is there reference to anger when God talks about defeating Israel's enemy. In fact, most of his anger seems to be reserved for the people themselves who continually choose to disobey and not follow him. There's a reason why God would devote these things to destruction. Uh, first of all, a very, to sum up a very large, long argument into a very small thing that you can definitely investigate further and should, is that this actual language of completely and utterly destroying is a form of hyperbole that is used at the time in all cultures. And you'll see that in the Bible because it'll say that they wiped out the people and then later on go back to how they're still dealing with these people. It, it's, it's sort of a phrase that is used in battle. It's basically a way of saying defeat. It's to say wipe them out, utterly destroy them, means to cast them out and to defeat them. But it doesn't literally mean wipe out every single person and every single thing in every single way. But why, why would God say that there, must be, that there must be no one of a culture living within the borders of Israel? That there must be uh, no remnants of uh, the cultures that worship these other gods? Because in order for him to remain the, the, the God of Israel, in order for these people to be distinct, which is what he created them, his people, to be, They had to be different. And what we see again and again is that when there's a remnant of people, when there's some gods and idols that are left, when things aren't fully uh, pushed out, cast outside the borders, what we see again and again is that the people will start to combine everything together. They'll say, I like what that God says. I like what these people bring in. I like this thing about this culture. And they'll bring it in, and it will ultimately change what it is for these Israelites to be God's people, to be distinct. God 
uses the Pharaoh basically like a chess piece in order to save his people, not just from the Egyptians, but from their own self-reliance. He uses that situation to save his people, not just from the enemies they see, but the enemies that they don't see. God uses the destruction of the people in the promised land to save the entire world through the establishing a nation that will be a flashing neon sign that will point everyone to his power and might in a way that that people had not been able to be rescued up till that point by establishing a people for himself God could do something new God uses the kings of Israel and their battles to save by Israel remaining supreme. There's always only going to be two options in terms of the way things can really work out. The first is the option that many of us would choose if given the choice, which is that God simply lower his standards, that he simply accept that, uh, you know, no one's ever going to make it. I get it. You guys are all sinful. You're all on a path to destruction. So I'm just going to, I'm going to turn a blind eye. My love for you is so strong that I'm going to lower my standard. And I'm going to let sin be a part of the relationship. And like a, like a wife or a husband who finally agrees to let their spouse be unfaithful because it's better than no marriage at all, this is the God many of us want. This is the God that we would create if we could. But this is a small God. This is a small God who is only ever as big as we allow him to be in our own hearts and our own minds. We, we want that option of God lowering the standard. But the truth is that God does not lower the standard. God is not changed and although God gives up control, God does not see past or overlook sin. He cannot and still be who he is. And so God could then demand that we overcome sin ourselves. Show him that we're worthy of his love, of his compassion. And because we can't, we know that we can't, we face destruction. Or there's a third way that God comes to us and he makes a way for us to overcome our sin and to get out of the hole that we're in, but this requires that he get involved in the mess. This requires that he come to us in a relationship and let go of some of the control. Um, one author put it this way, I'm, I'm, you need to be proud of the fact that I've limited this to one quote. Okay, so just for, you know, trying to talk about something like this, just think of it that way and really pay attention to the quote. Okay. Uh, one author um, put it this way. He said, identifying with a na nation by identifying with a king means that Yahweh will have to abide with a measure of the injustice and violence that Yahweh deplores. Amidst all the trials and travail, Yahweh will remain true to character, not given to caprice, but to caprice, but remaining slow to anger, enduring all manner of affronts and insults, and abounding in steadfast love. Yet, when the situation demands, Yahweh will not be reluctant to take up violence in order to bring down a king. The enemies are kings. 
Because kings are seen as gods. Because kings are seen as authority. Because kings are the people that you fear and bow down to. Because kings are the people that you believe will bring you salvation. And the God of the Israelites has made it clear that these are his people, and so all other kings will not be able to stand before him. And when Israel demands that they get a king, that drags them into the king world. And he says, it's going to be a mess. You're going to regret it. But the mess is not just a mess that happens within Israel's border. It's also a mess that happens outside of it. We see that ours is a God who shows his power by using the weak and the frail and by empowering the weak and the frail, by being a God who makes a nation, first starting from a man whose family is barren and then uses a nation of slaves that don't even have a home, and then uses a people who are always outnumbered by their enemies and their enemies' armies. God will continue to prevail while working with people who are meek and humble because this shows the world who he is. We read in 1 Corinthians, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The Israelites have no place to boast in anything other than the fact that their God is Yahweh. He empowers them. He protects them. He is glorified by their very existence. And so we see this God of the barren, of the slaves, this God of the homeless wanderers, this God of the sinner and the tax collector is not the God of the self-righteous. He is not the God of the Roman Empire. He is not the God of the strong king who claims to have so much might. We see that he is the God of the meek. He is the God of the barren. He is the God of the slave. He is the God of the Israelites. The reason that we struggle so much is because it is hard for us to see how God could be consistent to who he is and still tell Saul to murder people. But what the Bible shows us again and again is that the violence and the murder and the pain and the suffering are all the natural result of the sin that we all engage in. These things are the natural result of the fallenness of man living in the flesh. And that the only way for God to save us is to come into this mess that we have created, which he has said, I will do. And in doing so, to be in a relationship with us to give up a degree of control. To do that doesn't make him any less God. It doesn't make him... uh, in any way inconsistent with who he is in terms of being loving and gracious and merciful. The God of the Old Testament and the Israelite people is not violent for the sake of violence. 
It is controlled, it is measured, and there is still graciousness, and there is still mercy, much more that is seen from other kings and rulers. What it ought to show us and point us to is exactly how committed this God is to rescuing his people. And it shows us that if there is anything that we are to boast in, it is not in anything that we can do. It is not in any accomplishments that we've made in our own lives as a church, as a nation, as a people, but it is to boast in God himself. As Paul says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it is um, very difficult to encounter passages like this in the Bible because they don't line up with other things that we know to be true about you. But Father, um, you show us through this, first of all, just how important it is that we recognize your holiness, Lord. God, Saul was ultimately rejected because he chose to decide what made the most sense to him out of what you commanded. That is hard for us to deal with. But Father, we have the same tendencies within us, Lord. We want to rationalize through everything, to do what seems the most pragmatic. We want to uh, follow you until it stops making sense to us and then to stop and maybe figure our own way around it. But you call us to holiness, Lord. And when we see someone who is rejected because of what seems like such a little thing, what that shows us is not that you are a God who is petty, but it shows us that the little things matter. Would you help us to be a people who trust you and believe in you even when we can't explain everything about you? And would you help us to be a people who are eternally and overwhelmingly grateful for the willingness that you've had to give up control and to come to heal us from this brokenness, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.